0: go everything is good everything is live everything is working and hopefully the podcast will now have decent audio quality as it did last week i'm very glad that that all worked out guys thank you so much for joining me here tonight i see chris and i see lance and i see maya and i see jordana and i see elizabeth who was here for the first time i see robbie who is joining us despite saying that she wasn't going to join us i'll let you off the hook just this once i know that christina is watching us not just from the uk but from the bathtub Which I think if you're going to spend a couple of hours on a Tuesday night or a Wednesday morning, I guess, as it is there, uh, listening to a lecture about Harry Potter, then you should probably do it from the bathtub. It's a pretty good idea. Guys, before we begin tonight, just a couple of quick pieces of business. The first is to let you all know that we are conducting our first Patreon exclusive live QA this upcoming Thursday night. This was a last minute thing. We really wanted to squeeze one in before the end of April, so we've done so on the last day of April. So, two days from now, exactly 48 hours from now, in fact, Lonnie and I will be sitting right here. If you pledge your support on Patreon, if you give us a dollar a month or whatever you can afford on Patreon, then you will be able to. To see the little link that uh, that will get you to the live video you can ask us questions hang out with us for an hour is basically what we're going to do we're going to drink some wine and talk to you guys for an hour so you can find all the details about that on patreon.com slash and it is of course thanks to our generous patrons that we're able to do this seminar series at all you guys are valiant you guys are heroes you guys are rock stars there's one other small matter of business I'm aware right now that many of you may just click away from the video to go and visit StoryWonk.com because let me reveal to you, the voting for the next seminar is open. It has been open for about a minute and a half now, so you can head over there and vote for the next seminar book after we're done with Harry Potter. We are going to tackle one of the six books that I have shortlisted, let me say right up front. It was crazy difficult to make the shortlist. There's a short explanation in the uh, post on storywonk.com detailing how I arrive at the shortlist and the criteria that are necessary. It was, it was a tough decision this time. These six titles that you will all be able to vote on are... A Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula K. Le Guin. In case you're into some more, you know, young boy wizard at wizardy school action, then we'll have A Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula K. Le Guin. We will have Mort by the dear departed Terry Pratchett. His first really accomplished novel, and the novel I know that he has said many times, is the first at which he felt he got it right. This is the first novel at which his voice, that voice which would become so powerful and strident over the course of the 25 books that followed after it, this is the book where that voice shows up fully formed. It's, it's remarkable. We are also possibly going to look at Foucault's Pendulum, a novel of conspiracy, but far more importantly, a novel of narrative, a novel about what happens when we start telling stories to each other, uh, a, a classic and beautiful piece of work by Umberto Eco. Uh, we may do A Wrinkle in Time by Madeleine Langle. That is out there. You can go and vote for that one right now if you want to... Uh, If you want to give some thought to transitions uh, and to the liminal spaces between existences, something that we've been discussing right here on the Harry Potter seminar, that's out there right now. Generation X, Tales from an Accelerated Culture, Douglas Copeland's Breakout 1991 novel. This, again, a a story about telling stories, uh, a story about a group of people finding meaning through the narratives that they compose about their own lives and the lives of others. If you've never read Douglas Copeland, this is the place to start. If you have... And you will know why it is luminous and vibrant and violent and wondrous. It's a great, great book. And the last, of course, our honourable mention, our runner-up from the first vote, and I've got to say, probably the odds-on favourite at this point, Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Pride and Prejudice leading the pack, I'm sure, already, even as I read this to you. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of fun, guys. That uh, The voting will end. Let me take this again. The voting will end. Uh, I believe on May the 17th, May the 18th, it's out there somewhere, right before the Harry Potter seminar finishes. We will then begin in the middle of June sometime, depending on which book we pick, depending on how hard it's going to be to get hold of, depending on how much preparatory work I'm going to have to do. All of that remains up for grabs, but it'll be sometime in the middle of June. It's going to be a ton of fun, so please vote, please spread the word. Like I said, you've got about three weeks to vote, so you don't need to click away from the video right now and go do it. Is there an immediate, uh, is there an immediate outlier there? I don't even know. Oh, you know, I can actually click and see. I could click right now and see. Oh, my goodness. We have one vote for Foucault's Pendulum. We have three votes for Mort and two for Pride and Prejudice. And that is all in the first five minutes. It is apparently going to be a wholly contested vote. All right, I'm closing that window and getting back to work. Before we get into tonight's reading, a brief word about heroes and heroism. Um, The chapters we're about to read, are responsible for, or at least indicative of, possibly the biggest problem in Harry Potter, particularly to the eyes of adults. There's a fair amount of, of gnashing of teeth, certainly of, of opposition uh, to certain aspects of this story, usually from adults, because we're going to address specifically the special treatment that Harry receives. Professor McGonagall, tonight, is going to award Harry, gift Harry an incredibly expensive broomstick. Uh, She's going to outright break at least two standing school rules in order to allow him to join the Gryffindor Quidditch team, or I guess has already broken those rules. And here's the kicker, is going to be absolutely validated in her choice. She does things which, in real life... Would give us pause. She does things which in real life we would probably say reinforce a negative pattern of behavior for these young people, but she's completely vindicated because the choice that she makes is the right one, and Harry emerges triumphant. That can leave, I think it's fair to say, something of a bad taste in the mouth for some readers, as I said, particularly adults. Particularly when Such special treatment takes place within the framework of a formalized competition, be it Quidditch or the informal slash formal contest between the houses of Hogwarts. It's nothing, of course, compared to the most egregious piece of favoritism in the book, which we'll get from Dumbledore right at the very end, I'm sure you know to what I am referring, but it can still be jarring to see these children, and this child in particular, this special boy, the boy who lived, given such special treatment. So let's talk a little about heroes and about heroism and what we as readers and the supporting cast as realized people within this fictional world expect from heroes. The main problem here is that the word hero has taken on a number of meanings over the centuries and we generally use them freely and interchangeably. Depending on the type of book we're reading and the tradition in which it finds itself, we can expect very different things from our heroes, and we expect very different reactions from the people around the hero. It seems to me that there are, though, four main types. As ever, I'm given to taxonomy. There are four main types of hero. The first of these is the classical hero. This is your classic hero of Greek myth. This is your Perseus, your Theseus, your Heracles. The classical hero... And I should say, the classical hero needn't come from Greek myth. There are stories being written today about our contemporary world which feature classical heroes. Uh, so, so this is not a this is not a historical division. This is just where this type of hero became popular and entered our common shared narrative vocabulary. So, the classical hero, the Perseus, the Heracles, is inherently exceptional. He is by virtue of his birth special. And other and greater than we are. He's possibly of of royal birth at a time when being of royal birth meant that you were you know divinely touched, Uh, or he's an actual demigod. Either way, he is a superhero. You know, (laughs) Uh, Heracles was the Superman of his time and continues to be. He possesses exceptional traits. Is morally, ethically unimpeachable. Whatever he decides to do. And I'm going to use gendered language throughout here because the, the division between the, historically speaking, the division between heroes and heroines is too perhaps fine and subtle to get into within the frame of this seminar. But I'll definitely, definitely talk about that in the future. Um, the hero in this question, in this case, is though morally unimpeachable. Whatever decision he makes is the right decision because he is greater than we are. He usually suffers. From a hamartia, from a tragic flaw, which he will usually overcome, but which will usually also lead to his death, the classic hero, in this sense, fights for himself. He fights for glory, with little or no care for the world around him. Contrast that with the second type of hero, which is the medieval hero. This is the knight archetype. The knight is a different kind of man entirely. His exceptionalism, his heroism, is grounded usually in service and in piety, in a sense of honor. We're seeing here a post-Christian recreation of the, the hero construct, of the mythic hero construct. Justice enters the picture as a heroic virtue for the first time. The knight is the champion of the status quo, the preserver of society and community. He saves through service. At the same time, though, he is not like us. He can be common-born, unlike the great mythic hero, whose whose greatness is inbred, it's in the blood. The knight can rise to greatness, but his grace and his virtue are usually God-given. That is, unique to the man, not a consequence of birth, but also not something that can be learned or passed or traded off. The knight, unlike the classical hero and his, his fight for glory, the knight fights for justice the preservation or the establishment of justice and order. The third type of hero, the post-medieval hero, the the romantic hero, the Byronic hero, discards the laws and the, the, the strictures of culture and community in whole or less often in part. This is, you know, your Rochester from Jane Eyre. He is iconoclastic. He finds virtue in excess in unvirtuous excess specifically in passion and fury and devotion and sacrifice he exists outside of his own community and often in fact defines himself in opposition to it he doesn't live for his own pleasure exactly but rather in strict accordance with a set of countercultural iconoclastic rules and motivations which oftentimes happen to look like living for his own pleasure. He fights for what is right to him and him alone, and is, as a result, usually introverted, given to melancholia, given to, to deep internal insight. Um, and usually when we see his redemption come, if indeed it comes, it's in a flowering from that. Though, if I had to guess, I would argue that more Byronic heroes fail and die in misery and loneliness... Which is really what they want <laughs> than otherwise. The modern hero, lastly, the fourth type of hero, and I should reiterate here too, this is not about historical, uh, you know, lines drawn in the sand. The modern hero was created in the modern times, but right now we have all four of these heroes and other types of heroes too battling all alongside. You know, it's just as easy to write a medieval hero today alongside a romantic hero, alongside a modern hero, as it is to just strictly write modern heroes. But the modern hero is the product of the modern world. He is the nihilist. He believes that the notions of permanence and of right uh, are, 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 are flimsy or insubstantial completely. He instead fights for respite. He believes that the world is dark and corrupt, and growing darker and more corrupt, and he doesn't fight to establish or restore or maintain order. He wants goodness for his specific charge, which is usually not him. He usually believes that he himself is unworthy of that respite. He usually believes that he himself is a a, a functional cog in the darkness. He is as corrupt as the world around him. The characters that you'll see here... Film noir heroes are oftentimes, uh, modern heroes. You're looking at the lone gunslinger of, of Old West mythology. Sometimes the, the wandering samurai, you know, these are archetypes which, which reflect this idea that the world is dark, but sometimes a dark man can light just a spark in the night. And that's all you can ever hope for, in fact. So, which of these, which of these four types is Harry? Well, On the one hand, he does seem to fit part of the mould of the classical hero. He is special. We're introduced to him before we ever meet him as the boy who lived. He is the boy born of prophecy. He is the one who did the thing that no one else could do. And he was a baby at the time. This is not a product of, of, of who he is, but rather what he is. But that doesn't match up with the Harry that we see here. The Harry that we grew to know back in Privet Drive and the Harry that we've seen flourish here at Hogwarts, and will see flourish particularly in tonight's chapters. He is a medieval hero. He is a knight. He believes in justice. He believes in standing up against the bully. If anything, the internal tension that we see from Harry is the temptation to be the classical hero. You know, we talked a little last week about the temptations of power in the Harry Potter universe. We talked a little about this idea that that power is corruptive, particularly power expressed power wielded is corruptive we have Harry sitting aside his broomstick and taking off and there's just a hint just a second there that there's a dark shadow falling over him we have that we have that what is the what is the line there the uh the sharp joy right there's something there there's something coiled inside of Harry that that makes us, I think, uncomfortable, and will continue to make us uncomfortable, and of course we all know, being readers of the full series, what that is, but we'll get to that in due course. There is a tension in Harry between the idea of the classical hero, again, the classical hero properly represented by Slytherin, you know, there is an argument here <laughs> that that these types of heroes map crudely to the houses of Hogwarts. I'm loath to kind of tighten that allegory all the way, but Sure. You know, you could argue that the classical hero who's all about glory is, you know, would be perfect, let's say, in Slytherin, whereas the medieval hero who is all about piety and service and god, let's never forget courage, would be perfect in Gryffindor. So there's an internal tension in Harry between the two types of hero that he is, can be, could be potentially. But worse still, there's an external tension there. Because when Professor McGonagall looks at Harry, She apparently doesn't see a medieval hero. She doesn't see a knight. She sees Theseus. She sees Hercules. She sees a special child, someone to whom the rules do not apply. And that's a phrase we're going to come back to again and again tonight, and frankly again and again through the rest of the novel, because the rules don't apply to Harry. He is a special case. His exceptionalism is what drives this story forward, and we're going to be examining that. So it's complicated that Harry may see himself as a man as a boy as a as a as a hero of service and of loyalty and of courage but McGonagall doesn't and Hagrid I think doesn't and Dumbledore arguably doesn't the legend of Harry Potter is of the classical hero the boy himself has to find a humbler path that tension by the way we see this all the time. <laughs> that, that is a very popular and very common tension, particularly when we're talking about fantasy stories, particularly when we're talking about any story really that takes place in a heightened reality. Uh, I'm seeing some, some peripheral chat here right out on the edge uh, about the Avengers, which I'll get to in just a moment. Um, there, there is always a temptation. When you have a character who, who occupies that space between service and exceptionalism, that character who is innately other than us, who is better, greater, higher than us, and yet holds to these principles of courage, honesty, loyalty, service. That, I think, is responsible for most of the Christ allegory that we see or believe that we see or that we argue about in modern fiction. And that's, I mean, true (laughs) as far as it goes, you know, That tension is like, you know, I need to be very, very careful about my language here. That tension does echo the tension and the the dynamism and the internal conflict that we see at the heart of Christ as a literary figure, um, which I say only to disambiguate from the the, the historical reality. Um, But that isn't enough to draw direct comparison. That isn't enough to say this story is a Christ allegory because the hero displays this one particular trait. Because that one particular trait is all over the place. And if you start seeing that trait, that tension, that dynamism as being representative or indicative of Christ allegory, you are going to see it everywhere forever. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's real. Sometimes it's just a similar kind of story. Alright, let's see what we have here. (laughs) An intense beginning. An absolutely intense beginning. I saw Kay Clark post something here. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So we're breaking down... (laughs) <laughs> we are breaking down here. Oh, see, now this, uh, there's a fundamental disagreement I have with you here, Clay. The, the, the medieval hero, Captain America. Absolutely, yes. All about justice. All about service. He is inherently greater, but that is an inherent greatness that does not come from his birthright. It comes from, from something that he himself possesses. I'm not referring, of course, to the super soldier serum. I am referring to his courage and gentleness of heart. Yes. Captain America is the archetypal, uh, medieval hero. You have Tony Stark as the romantic hero and Bruce Banner as the modern and I would invert those. The the tortured Bruce Banner who exiles himself, who defines himself in opposition to community, to society. He is the romantic hero. He wants to exist on the outskirts. He is is forced to embrace I, I said when I was talking about the romantic hero about finding virtue in an excess of unvirtuous quality. That is the Hulk and his his rage. That is the I'm always angry line from the first Avengers movie. Tony Stark is much more the modern man. He believes that the world is, in a way, inexorably corrupt, that it is always perennially sliding into darkness. But you can light a light. You can you can for the moment hold the darkness back. That's that would be my take on it. And of course, yes, the mythic hero, Thor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So what do we think of that? What do we make of all that? Let me take a look here in the YouTube chat. Yeah, Lance asks, so which type of hero would be in Hufflepuff? Yes, and unfortunately, the, the comparison kind of breaks down between Hufflepuff and Ravenclaw. There's not a strong tendency there. I would say that the intellectual bias of Ravenclaw would lead them more to Byronic qualities that would lead them more to that kind of profound introspection that we see from your, your Rochesters, your Dantes. Um, Whereas the simple loyalty and the kind of the, 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 the mechanism of the one-to-one relationship that we see from Hufflepuff, they are less, at least according to some interpretations, and of course we're horribly overthinking how structure here in the first book, but that loyalty is a personal relationship and that ties us to the idea of the modern hero who doesn't care so much for abstract qualities, who is more about, I won't save the world because the world needs saving, I will save the world because you need saving, you know? All right. Oh, Alan composed that excellent list. Thank you, Kay. Excellent, excellent, excellent. (laughs) Oh, right. Had I scrolled down, had I scrolled down a little further, I would have seen Alan compose it. I don't know. I don't know if you guys are having trouble with Twitter today. My, My Twitter is all over the place. Great. Good, good, good. All right. Let's take another quick look at the YouTube chat here. Elizabeth says, I think that it made me sympathetic for McGonagall. This is one of the first times I get a look at her humanness. That is definitely something we'll pull out tonight. Yes, sometimes she seems superhuman in her restraint and her adherence to the rules. I think you're right. We we get we get too few glimpses within the span of this novel um, of Minerva McGonagall's humanity, um, which is honestly true of most of the faculty, most of the adults. Honestly, in this book, get a thumbnail sketch. There are moments when they're. Characterization is so on point. Uh, after Professor Quirrell storms into the Halloween banquet and tells him that there is a troll in the basement, we get this brilliant moment from Dumbledore, where all of that equivocation and silliness and nonsense evaporates in a second, and he is on it. He snaps out these commands like he's Gandalf. You know, it's it's that it's that same archetype, I guess. You know, it's that it's that bumbling, you know, addle minded wizard who suddenly, in a moment, becomes this this force of nature. Yeah, yeah. Alan says, I just need literature explained in comic book form. You know, I should do a comic book in one of these things. I should do Watchmen or, uh, or Marvel 1602. Marvel 1602 is so good. You guys, you guys. Uh, Maya, I'm going we'll maybe make this the last one. Medieval hero is Buffy. Romantic hero is Angel. Modern hero is Spike. Mmm. I think you could argue that that's that's on the money. Um, I'm very happy with the the romantic hero there. I'm very happy with the modern hero. And Buffy, it would seem to me, exists somewhere in that space, somewhere in that liminal space between classic and medieval. You know, she is tempted by her power more than once, though, yes, she absolutely comes out on the side of the medieval. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Lance says, the adults are not as flat as in Peanuts, at least. It's a close-run thing, but I think you have it. I think you're right. Yeah, good, good, good. Oh, and Giordana says the knight is usually a vassal and loyal. Yes, though being a vassal is is less about taking orders than it is from the, than it is about embodying the social structure. You know, they are not iconoclastic. They exist to reinforce this this cultural knowledge, this 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 abstract idea of the just and right rule of law. Um. That is an argument that I've had many times for those of you who stuck with me out of the Outlander seminar. Of course, you'll recognize some of this material because this is an argument I had many times about uh, Jamie Fraser in Outlander. One of his great virtues is that he is a medieval hero. He absolutely represents the rule of law and of justice and of leadership. The knight is a vassal until he's called upon to lead. And he does that too. All right, great. Ooh, I'm a Mad Hatter adds, faith is mythic. Yes. i will say no more than that in case there are people listening who uh are following along with dusted and and haven't yet met that character can't imagine there's many but uh just in case yes i will say that and no more all right guys let's get right into it i don't think i have anything else to uh to preface here so instead just a little whiskey and we'll get started Mm. so we open chapter 10 on the, midnight, on the aftermath, I should say, of the midnight dash across Hogwarts and Harry's second encounter, of course, with the Forbidden Hallway there. Um, we've been given the clue, kind of lampshaded by Hermione, that there's something hidden under the trapdoor, under the Forbidden Hallway, under the three-headed dog, four-headed dog, perhaps after I've had enough whiskey. <laughs> and Harry has come to the conclusion that, it's somewhat of a cognitive leap, but we'll follow him there. He's come to the conclusion that this is the same thing that Hagrid took from the vault at Gringotts. The next morning, Rowling consciously, conspicuously resets the narrative. She recasts the events of the previous evening, and she sets our expectation for what is to come. And I have that, in fact, on a slide. Malfoy couldn't believe his eyes when he saw that Harry and Ron were still at Hogwarts the next day, looking tired but perfectly cheerful. Indeed, by the next morning, Harry and Ron thought that meeting the three-headed dog had been an excellent adventure, and they were quite keen to have another one. In the meantime, Harry filled Ron in about the package that seemed to have been moved from Gringotts to Hogwarts, and they spent a lot of time wondering what could possibly need such heavy protection. "'It's either really valuable or really dangerous,' said Ron. "'Or both,' said Harry." But as all they knew for sure was that the mysterious. Uh, excuse me. But as all they knew for sure about the mysterious object was that it was about two inches long, they didn't have much chance of guessing what it was without further clues. Neither Neville nor Hermione showed the slightest interest in what lay underneath the dog and the trapdoor. All Neville cared about was never going near the dog again. Hermione was now refusing to speak to Harry and Ron, but she was such a bossy know-it-all that they saw this as an added bonus. All they really wanted now was a way of getting back at Malfoy. And to their great delight, just such a thing arrived in the mail about a week later. So clearly, it isn't time for us to address the mystery. Harry and Ron are setting it aside for now, and we're told by the narrator, you don't have enough information to speculate. Let's just go. Let it go. It's fine. It's fine. Look, too, how far out of Harry's POV we are here. We begin with an account of Malfoy's reaction to Harry and Ron's appearance, and we're told that Hermione doesn't show the slightest interest in the trapdoor, despite the fact that she isn't talking to Ron or to Harry. Are we supposed to infer from that the reason that she doesn't show interest is that she's silent? I don't think so. We're getting a new account of the status quo. We, We are breaking Harry's POV, albeit in a fairly minor and flexible fashion. But we're breaking it to to update everyone on where we are before we reseat ourselves in Harry's POV and we pick up the story. These chapters throughout the middle of the book, I didn't mention this a little last week, but these chapters throughout the middle of the book are incredibly episodic. Absolutely episodic. Oh, and yes, Robbie is noting, uh, Robbie, I do call you out later because you absolutely hit it beautifully, but you're right. Uh, there is a POV break here. This is less a POV break in that we don't slip into anyone else's POV. We just we just zoom out from Harry and we're given an account about where we are and then we zoom back in. But yes, Robbie sent me a brilliant email earlier this week uh, pointing out that in the Quidditch match, we break Harry's POV properly for the first time since Chapter 2. We'll talk about what that means when we get there, but you are absolutely right. You are on the money. So Harry and Ron run into Malfoy, who is enraged that Harry is, as Hermione points out just moments later, being rewarded for breaking the rules, or I guess, more appropriately, for acting as though the rules don't apply to him and thereby proving his exceptionalism. Let's think about this it's important, I think, to kind of understand why I hold this to be so significant. I think we have to understand what is happening here. Minerva McGonagall caught Harry breaking the rules. He broke a very specific and pointed rule that was there for his own protection. She then broke that rule or allowed that rule to be broken or allowed the breaking of the rule to go without punishment in order to recruit Harry onto the Quidditch team. That would be, we might think... Proof enough that she is horribly biased in her inconsistent application of the rules of Hogwarts. Lest we forget, this is a rule that existed, to, or, or a, 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 an injunction that existed to prevent the children from coming to harm. Doubling down on that, though, she buys Harry a broomstick. Broomsticks are forbidden for first years. We know that of old, and Draco reminds us right here. But she doesn't just buy him a broomstick. She buys him the best broomstick. She buys him the broomstick that is the, I don't know, the Porsche, (laughs) the Ferrari of broomsticks. This is not just a wildly excessive act for an authority figure. This is awfully close to, to actively provocative. Is she ignorant of the possible response that this could elicit from the other students, (laughs) it seems wild to me that Draco is the only one with a problem with this. You You would think that the other Gryffindor kids, who all seem super happy that Harry has this incredibly expensive broomstick, you would think that they would have a problem with this too. Except, of course, this story isn't about how we see Harry. Or not just about how we see Harry. It's also about how the other children see Harry. This is Harry living up to his legend. Now, what I find so interesting about this is that because of the foreshadowing, because of the stuff in Chapter 1 about the difference between Dumbledore and Voldemort, because of Harry's temptation towards Slytherin and the Sorting Hat's confirmation that, yes, actually, he would definitely find a home in Slytherin, because of the way that we've treated power so far, I feel an anxiety whenever Harry takes a step toward believing his own press. Whenever he takes a step toward believing that he is a special case, there's a real rich internal tension there that I think would be completely, uh, completely invisible to, completely impermeable, to, or completely permeable, I guess, to children reading this book for the first time. Because children all firmly believe in their own exceptionalism. Part of growing up is understanding that you are not a special snowflake, is understanding that other people have lives and experience and interiority and perspectives and cares and motivations and all of those rich and wonderful and crunchy and complicated things that make life so interesting. When you're a child, you don't have that. You are the center of the world, so it's okay that Harry gets treated this way. Part of this entire series is Harry growing up. We're going to see that very powerfully, and that's being represented right now. Chris asks, do the same perks ever apply to other Star Quidditch players? We certainly don't get an account of that, do we? I was looking for that today. There's nothing in this book that implies that that's the same thing. In fact, the others seem fairly traditional, I guess. I don't think for a moment that Minerva McGonagall ran out and bought Fred and George Weasley's, uh, Weasley, Nimbus 2000s, you know? Oh, Kay asks, did he need the early life impoverishment to constrain him in some way? Yes. Yes. I think this may be the core of the whole what-was-Dumbledore-thinking question. I think there may be an argument. Oh, you know what? Let's let's stick a pin in that, and we'll come back to that right at the end of the book, because I think that the end of the book reframes some of Dumbledore's earlier decisions. Yes, think for now about whether or not Dumbledore did what was best for Harry by consciously and deliberately giving him a hard, awful upbringing. All right. And I still have that slide up. <laughs> I should set a timer or something so I can take these slides down. All right. In fact, let's just move on to the next slide, because we're about to get there. Anyway, that evening, Harry goes out to the Quidditch pitch, or the Quidditch field, I guess, in the US edition of the book. Uh, Wood gives Harry and the reader a gloss of the rules of the game. This is the aggressively reactive kind of, of basketball, where each individual basket is worth 10 points. We are introduced to beaters, to bludgers, and finally, to the snitch. Oh, Andrea says in the YouTube chat, Dumbledore knew how power goes to your head. And that, I think, is is right on it. Yes. Um, So here we have this, this sequence. After we're introduced to the basic rules of Quidditch, here we have the advanced game. Wood reached into the crate and took out the fourth and last ball. Compared with the Quaffle and the Bludgers, it was tiny, about the size of a large walnut. It was bright gold and had little fluttering silver wings. This, said Wood, is the golden snitch. It's the most important ball of the lot. It's very hard to catch because it's so fast and difficult to see the seeker's job to catch it. You got to weave in and out, the chasers, the beaters, bludgers, and quaffle, to get it before the other team's seeker, because whichever seeker catches the snitch, wins his team an extra 150 points, so they nearly always win. That's why seekers get fouled so much. The game of Quidditch only ends when the snitch is caught, so it can go on for ages. I think the record is three months. They had to keep bringing on substitutes so the players could get some sleep. Well, that's it. Any questions? Harry shook his head. He understood what he had to do, all right. It was, it was doing it that was going to be the problem. So let's talk a little about the exceptionalism. <laughs> this time, not the exceptionalism of Harry Potter, but exceptionalism in the world of Harry Potter. When you get right down to it, Quidditch makes no sense as a sport. Um, and here it is, right here. The entire game serves as little more than a battlefield for the two seekers to test their skill it isn't just the point advantage though that is a huge point advantage that is like having a special super secret basket that pops up from time to time on the basketball court that is worth 50 points if you hit it um that's actually you know like how the math works (laughs) and of course you know if you're a follower of of professional basketball you will know that the margins for victory are rarely more than 50 points But it isn't just that. It isn't just the incredible point weight that's associated with the golden snitch. It's that the game ends when it is caught. How something ends, and we know this from stories, we know this from narrative. If you listen to my Journeyman Writer podcast, you've heard me talk about this before. How and where a story ends can tell us what the story was. It can tell us what was at stake. When something concludes, we know that we've reached the terminus of whatever arc we were following, even if we didn't know what that arc described as we were following it. Because the Seekers end the game by catching the Golden Snitch, we know that Quidditch is a game where two Seekers compete to catch the Golden Snitch, and a lot of other complicated stuff happens out on the sidelines. This isn't a match between two teams. It's a match between two opposing individuals with a lot of backup. Harry practices catching golf balls and Wood is impressed. We draw a veil over the proceedings and we skip ahead to Halloween. do let me say, by the way, (laughs) this is not a criticism of Quidditch. This is not a criticism of Quidditch, particularly in its role as a fantasy sport played by Wizards. It does exactly what the narrative needs it to do. I'm only pointing out that it's insane <laughs> as a way of illustrating that exceptionalism is a major theme in this book, not just in Harry's actions and interactions. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And we're getting some, we're getting some, some, some explanation here too, that, um, yeah, we're getting some explanation too, uh, That. that's, Minerva McGonagall, of course, really does favour Gryffindor and that she's willing to brand the rules in order to to achieve some victory, yes. Brooke says Minerva wants to win, damn the rules! Yeah, I mean, there's a difference, though, between overlooking rule-breaking, um, Harry flying around to recover Neville's remember-all from Draco Malfoy, um... There's a difference between that and and giving a first-year student something that first-year student is not supposed to have, and it also being the best and most preposterous version of that thing. Um, all right, so we skip ahead to uh, Halloween. This is the end, for those of you keeping track at home, this is the end of Harry's third week at Hogwarts. This is when he's catching the golf balls, having been accepted on the Quidditch team. He has been there for three weeks. We skip ahead six more weeks to Halloween. So we're skipping ahead double the amount of time that we've witnessed already. So if there's a sharp transition here, and honestly, I think it's debatable whether or not there is, but if there is a sharp transition here, that accounts for it. He's been here for quite a while by this point. Oh, I should note too, while I was putting this whole thing together, <laughs> I went and looked up some, some calendar dates and some, some, uh, some interesting and, and, you know, significant dates in the world of Harry Potter. And I discovered that The night before Harry's Quidditch trial, the night before he's catching golf balls and learning the rules of Quidditch, the night that he and Ron and Hermione and Neville are chased through the castle by Filch and they they find themselves in the forbidden hallway and they come face-to-face with Fluffy, the night that that happens is September the 19th. September the 19th, as we will learn in later books, is Hermione's birthday. I like to think that is why Hermione was so pissed off and cranky during that whole endeavor. Because it was her birthday and no one knew it. (laughs) A little bit of headcanon for me. So we pick up in Charms class, and we begin, I think, what is one of the most popular sessions of the book. I know that when we announced that we were doing this, when I announced that we were doing this book, a lot of people, you know, were, were, were tweeting at me, Wingardium Leviosa. This is a very popular piece and and is one of the pieces that this Charms class in particular is one of the pieces that that the book uh, the excuse me the movie really gets right. Um yeah. Okay, there's a lot of chat suddenly going on. Okay, all right. Um, (laughs) So we pick up in Charms class. We begin with Hermione and Ron being paired up. All right. And uh, Hermione teaching Ron how to properly enunciate his spellcasting. "'Now, don't forget the nice wrist movement we've been practicing," squeaked Professor Flitwick, perched on top of his pile of books as usual. "'Swish and flick, remember? Swish and flick. "'And saying the magic words properly is very important, too. "'Never forget Wizard Barufio, who said S instead of F "'and found himself on the floor with a buffalo on his chest.' "'It was very difficult. "'Harry and Seamus swished and flicked, "'but the feather they were supposed to be sending skyward "'just lay on the desktop.' Seamus got so impatient that he prodded it with his wand and set fire to it. Harry had to put it out with his hat. Ron, at the next table, wasn't having much more luck. Wingardium Leviosa! he shouted, waving his long arms like a windmill. You're saying it wrong, Harry heard Hermione snap. It's Wingardium Leviosa. Make the gar nice and long. You do it then, if you're so clever, Ron snarled. Hermione rolled up the sleeves of her gown, flicked her wand and said... Wingardium Leviosa! Their feather rose off the desk and hovered about four feet above their heads. Oh, well done, cried Professor Flitwick, clapping. Everyone see here, Miss Granger's done it! Ron was in a very bad mood by the end of the class. It's no wonder no one can stand her, he said to Harry as they pushed their way out into the crowded corridor. She's a nightmare, honestly. Someone knocked into Harry as they hurried past him. It was Hermione. Harry caught a glimpse of her face and was startled to see that she was in tears. This is the moment. (laughs) We talk all the time here at Storywonk about the importance of vulnerability to character. Vulnerability is the means by which we emotionally access and engage with other people. Vulnerability is how human beings connect with one another. That is true in fiction. That is true in real life. Until this point, Hermione has been, well, Hermione, she's been cold and precise and she's been perfect. She has been a know-it-all. But right now, we reveal that while those things are true, while they are important parts of her character, she's made vulnerable by that perfectionism. She's made vulnerable by her aptitude, by her intelligence. Those things alienate her from the people around her. Don't you warm immediately to Hermione here, if you hadn't already? Don't you warm immediately to her when you see how upset she is? And what's interesting, of course, is that that's reflected in the text. This is when Ron begins to warm to her. They're going to continue to to bump up against one another, if I can put that perhaps less delicately than I should. They are going to continue to aggravate one another throughout the entire series, of course. But there is something learned here that will not be forgotten, which is that Hermione is a human being. That is a valuable lesson, and that is something for the writers in the audience. That is something for, or, or, you know, for the readers in the audience. If you want to understand, more often than not, why some characters leave you cold and other characters just open up your heart and climb inside, it's almost always vulnerability. Having something in the world which can hurt you makes you vulnerable caring about things makes you vulnerable loving things makes you vulnerable that by the way is why we in real life are always so careful to shroud those things that's always why if you've ever been in mixed company and someone says oh hey i heard you like that geeky nerdy thing you you hang out on the internet on a tuesday night listening to some dude talk about harry potter right that's weird that's why in those moments we tend to say (laughs) no no that's that's crazy don't be silly when instead we should say, yes, and let me tell you why. (laughs) Loving something, caring about something, expressing the importance of something, striving for something. All these things make us vulnerable. And that's reflected in this moment, when we realize, Harry and Ron realize, (laughs) we, of course, adults that we are, I would hope, already empathize with Hermione. We already understand what this young lady is going through. But I think for the children in the audience... For the book's audience, I should say perhaps more than, more than my audience, uh, for the children in the audience, I think this moment is important. And, and children too connect with vulnerability. They connect with empathy. If you've ever, I, I once taught for, for a few years, actually, for a few summers, I taught, uh, children's theater and I would lead these kids and we, we put on a play over the course of six or eight weeks over the summer holidays back in Scotland. And I remember so many moments of a kid just fluffing their lines on stage, of being on the verge of tears, or of, you know, a much more mundane, you know, falling down, or or getting in an argument with their best friend. And these moments when you are suddenly and starkly vulnerable, the way that people respond is almost always, almost invariably, almost universally with kindness. It's a remarkable thing. Vulnerability is a remarkable thing. If you'd like to know more... You should definitely go and check out the work of the brilliant Brene Brown. I'll uh, post a link on Twitter when this whole thing is over. You can go and watch Brene Brown. Give possibly the greatest TED Talk ever and a TED Talk that will change your life. I know, TED Talks, whatever. They're a little passé now, but this one, this one is genius. Oh, and Pam pulls out something I wanted to note too. Yes, Hermione is now not referred to as Hermione Granger. She's just Hermione. There are points when she will be referred to by her full name, but it's always more important. There are, there are times when Ron will be referred to by his full name too. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good, good. (laughs) Allison says, embrace the inner nerd. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And Andrea says, kids who are smart go through a lot of pain due to the cruelty of others. I don't think she's a know-it-all. I think she shouldn't have to hide her intelligence. I completely concur. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Good. Great. No, and this is this is genuinely and legitimately, you know, I know you didn't come here for, for life lessons and my personal philosophy, but um, <laughs> let me say right now. This is how we, oh my god, Kay's sending off my, my slide alarm. Thank you, Kay. I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> let's get rid of that slide and come back to you. Yes. Um, this is why in real life, having the courage to be vulnerable, having the courage to, not necessarily, you know, don't don't, don't tear yourself open and, and, and show your, your bleeding wounds to the world around you, because that's oftentimes a power play. That's oftentimes not about vulnerability. That's about protecting yourself. That is possibly a conversation best held at another time. Perhaps the Q&A on Thursday night. Come tell me what I think about vulnerability. Um, but But far more importantly, expressing the things that you love, loving the things that you love, talking about it with enthusiasm and positivity and respect. That opens up a permissive space for those around you to talk about the things that they love, to express their vulnerability freely and safely. It's an incredibly powerful thing, and it's an incredibly important gift that you can give to the people around you. I'm definitely getting back to Harry Potter now. Enough of that. All right. Because it is 10 to 10. Okay. (laughs) Let's also look at what we learn at this point about the art of spellcasting. I I was talking a little last week about how magic works. And the ways in which it is codified as a rule system, the differences between spell casting, this this whole you know flash and dazzle razzmatazz of spell casting according to Professor Snape, and the much more kind of disciplined and focused and treacherous uh, science of alchemy or, or or you know potion craft. Um, there's a physical component in the spell casting which is apparently it is apparently expressive. The swish and flick is apparently expressive rather than analogous. You know, you're not, um, I remember many years ago having a long drunken conversation with a a good friend of mine about Darth Vader and about the way when Darth Vader force chokes someone, usually, you know, an Imperial Admiral, he will hold out his gloved hand. Let me try and do that in front of the camera. He will hold out his gloved hand and make a choking motion. And we had a long argument about whether or not that was a necessary part of it or whether he could force choke someone with his hands at his sides. Is he simply transferring the force of his fist through, if you'll excuse me, the force? Or is it just a a gesture? Is it just a means of expressing his frustration? So the swish and the flick doesn't seem to be, you know, creating or or some kind of generative force that that moves the feather. It seems to be much more abstracted than that. I'm making very, very delicate gestures here with my hand as I'm even talking about this. I get so caught up in this. Um. And the verbal component too requires incredible precision. You know the, the the subtlety that Hermione points out is one that you could easily miss. It's one that I'm not sure that I hit when I was reading that slide aloud. It's a very exacting scientific kind of thing. So. As we discussed last week, the the idea that sufficient knowledge, the idea of knowing exactly how to say these magical words and how to execute your little swish and flick, the idea that sufficient knowledge could result in seemingly magical consequences is a hallmark of the first natural philosophers, not magicians, but early scientists. And this is very much, it would seem, in that tradition, except, despite the lack of apparent mysticism, (laughs) the lack of apparent, you know, magic, as it were, There's no sense here that that muggles who did these things, even doing them perfectly, would cast the spell. There is some intangible internal component to magic. There is something still that sets a wizard apart. But it's interesting that in neither spellcraft, which we may have expected to see it here, right? Since Professor Snape is is talking derisively about, about the casting of spells, we may expect to see in charms class what it is that makes a wizard different, you know? But we don't. Here we get, it's just a different kind of science. It's just a different kind of rule. It's a different kind of precision, but it's every bit as exacting as the potions class that we saw. That is tight to the ideas of natural philosophy and alchemy, which of course is a central theme of the book. And in some countries, the title of the book. (laughs) All right. Harry and Ron are momentarily distracted by the splendors of the Halloween banquet, but their feast has barely begun when Professor Quirrell runs in and tells everyone a troll is loose in the dungeons. Um, And this is the beat, I didn't pull this up on a slide because it's so short, but this is the beat where we suddenly get no trace, no hint of, of Dumbledore's befuddlement or silliness. There's none of that stuff that we saw back uh, back at the introductory meal um, after the after the students were sorted and he led the, the entire school in this silly song. He is right on top of things as he orders this evacuation back to the dorms. We got a wonderful character beat for Percy, too, who is just right on it. It's great. <laughs> There's so much stuff in this book that just makes me happy. Harry remembers on their way back to the dorm that Hermione is missing, and he and Ron go to warn her. So let me ask you this. I will uh, I have a slide about the arrival of the troll, um, but I want to kind of ask this question because of the delay so that we can address it after I come out of the slide. It's all going to be very well orchestrated. Let me ask you this. Harry could go and talk to Percy and tell him what happened. He could find a member of the faculty and coordinate a search team to go and get Hermione. Harry is not at fault. I mean, morally, perhaps, but not legally. Harry and Ron would not get in trouble for saying Hermione's in the bathroom and she's been there for some time and she doesn't know. Harry doesn't even seem to consider it. He seems to immediately jump into action. Considering the virtues of the classical hero and the medieval hero that I described earlier... (laughs) Tell me which of those heroes Harry is best embodying, and I think that there are traits of both I, I don't think that this is a this is a clear-cut argument. Is this about Harry taking action for personal glory because he believes at some level he's better suited to save the day than anyone else? or is it about justice and the recita- uh, the, the, the the restoration excuse me of order? is he going to save Hermione because he's responsible for hermione? What do you think? Get into that. All right. In the meantime, though, we pass by Snape, who is heading ominously for the third floor, and then we arrive at a troll. Harry sniffed, and a foul stanch reached his nostrils, a mixture of old socks and the kind of public toilet no one seems to clean. And then they heard it, a low grunting and the shuffling footfalls of gigantic feet. Ron pointed. At the end of the passage to the left, something huge was moving toward them. They shrank into the shadows and watched as it emerged into the patch of moonlight. It was a horrible sight. Twelve feet tall, its skin was a dull granite grey, its great lumpy body like a boulder with its small bald head perched on top like a coconut. It had short legs thick as tree trunks with flat, horny feet. The smell coming from it was incredible. It was holding a huge wooden club, which dragged along the floor because its arms were so long. The troll stopped next to the doorway and peered inside. It waggled its long ears, making up its tiny mind, then slouched slowly into the room. The keys in the lock, Harry muttered. We could lock it in. Good idea, said Ron nervously. They edged toward the open door, mouths dry, praying the troll wasn't about to come out of it. With one great leap, Harry managed to grab the key, slam the door, and lock it. Yes! Flushed with their victory, they started to run back up the passage. But as they reached the corner, they heard something that made their hearts stop a high, petrified scream. And it was coming from the chamber they'd just chained up. All right. So let's get to this in just a moment. Let me instead turn to the question I asked you. <laughs> Alan said, I see little personal glory in it. I see guilt and responsibility. Remember, there's no guarantee for Harry he'll win. I think you may yes, that's absolutely a fair a fair take on that. Kay says, I think Harry felt a responsibility toward Hermione and instinctively acted to aid her. Yes, there's responsibility. That's that's a key factor, right? Yes. Robbie says in the YouTube chat here If Hermione admitted she was crying in the bathroom it might have led to why, and that Harry and Ron had been mean to her and at this point she doesn't want to get them in trouble Yes, though you would hope that even Hermione would have a sense of, you know, propriety, I suppose <laughs> That she would understand that this is a very minor kind of trouble Yeah Yes Oh, there's some speculation here uh, I'm a Mad Hatter says Also, I never understood why Hermione lied to McGee M- <laughs> we're going to call McGee McG from now on. Uh, she could have just said that she went to the bathroom. I think by implication, this is not, you know, the closest bathroom to where the Great Hall is. By implication, this is a bathroom in another part of the school. I, I'm going to guess, even if this is a small school of 200, 250 students, that there is more than one girls' bathroom. Uh, So I I always assumed that that the reason that Hermione has to lie about it is that this isn't even a part of the school that she should be in at this time of day, never mind the troll attack. That's my personal justification for it. (laughs) And Jolly says, justice and restoration, I believe. Personal glory doesn't sit quite right with me. I see his loyalty to this new family at Hogwarts. Yes. And Barbara says, Harry goes after Hermione because he feels guilty about his and Ron's conversation. They made her feel bad. Yeah yeah <laughs> yeah good Joan says, Harry feels somewhat responsible for hermione being there no, I think you're I think you're entirely right um I guess the one thing that gives me pause the medieval hero, the knight, is about the efficacy of action. he has no stake, he has no sense of his own glory. Humility is, in fact, one of the key virtues of that archetype. There's nothing stopping Harry from, at the very least, attracting Percy's attention. Or calling on Neville or one of the other children around him and saying, you go for help, go tell Dumbledore, go tell McGonagall that this is what has happened. But he doesn't. He takes sole responsibility for it. And that kind of sole responsibility can imply a certain arrogance? A certain hubris? A certain prideful sense of one's own exceptionalism, at least? I'm not at all sold on that. I'm kind of voicing this more as a point of speculation than anything more concrete. I do think that he genuinely cares about Hermione, he genuinely feels bad about it, he genuinely feels responsible for it, though he himself, of course, didn't do anything. He, of course, he himself, of course, didn't insult her. Um, That was all wrong. those damn Weasleys alright let's get back to the the scene in question what I like most about this sequence is that it demonstrates so beautifully exactly why Harry and Ron need Hermione this is why Hermione needs to be a part of the power trio because if Hermione were there she would have told them that that was the door to the girls bathroom she has a sense of the bigger picture she was the one who noticed the trapdoor, you know? She has an eye for detail that Ron, in his, you know, bleeding heart, <laughs> pathos uh, role, doesn't have. And that Harry, in his desire for, for taking action, also doesn't have. Um, yes. Yes. <laughs> We should note, yeah, um, we'll get to it in, in, in just a moment, but we should note, of course, as well, that it is Hermione's intellect that, that that saves the day, because she is the one who corrected Ron's pronunciation of the Wingardium Leviosa spell that saves the day, ultimately. So we'll get to that in a second. This is why, this demonstrates very clearly why Hermione is needed as much as she needs. And we'll talk about the exact interaction that that, that implies uh, in due course. So let's talk about the troll, because the troll is the first monster that we've encountered in Harry Potter. The first, like, genuine, you know, this is a monster monster. Um, the first non-human sentience. It's interesting that the troll is definitely not an animal. And I think we can tell that the troll is definitely not an animal in two ways. The first is this beat when it is looking at the door to the bathroom. And it's kind of tilting its head. It's it's, it's figuring out what it wants to do. It's making up its tiny mind, to to borrow the quote from the text which implies a rationality that we don't normally see from from animals. Also, there's the emphasis that is put on the troll being knocked unconscious rather than kill that, right? And it's not so much that I think that any similar situation had a bear intruded into Hogwarts, they would have just callously killed it. It's the kind of focus that is put on its unconscious state that makes me think that, yeah, trolls are probably a kind of a, a sub-rational but sentient creature. Um, at this point, of course. <laughs> it's interesting, too, that the, the troll is not a part of the mundane world. It is obviously not a part of Harry's mundane experience, and yet, well, doesn't it remind us of someone? Isn't there another creature that is is isn't id-driven creature of, of violence and destruction and immediate gratification? Isn't there another creature in Harry's personal experience who is unlovely, who is uh, lacking in in refinement? The Troll and Dudley Dursley would probably get along quite well. Um, and it's interesting that we see Harry's first accomplishment, Harry's first real accomplishment, and, and the Power Trio's first real accomplishment can be seen as a symbolic, you know... Um, A symbolic conquest of Dudley's bullying, you know? Of the burdens that Harry still carries from his his earlier youth. So we'll skip over the action scene, in which Harry leaps on the troll's back and Ron levitates the club, only for gravity to render the troll unconscious. Uh, Professors McGonagall, Snape, and Quirrell arrive together, and we see the other half slot into place. I I, I spoke earlier about how much Harry and Ron need Hermione. Now we see how much Hermione needs Harry and Ron because the nascent acceptance, and we'll see this formalized at the end of the chapter, but the nascent acceptance that she's seeing now, just knowing that Harry and Ron came for her, allows her to relax. It allows her to not perhaps cling quite so tightly. Um, Yeah, she's... She's free at this point to resist, I think her own most conservative tendencies. Uh, and 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 that's balanced too in that Ron shows more heroism than he would show if he were by himself, you know Part of the virtue of Harry's presence and that's probably making it too simple. Part of the virtue of the the web of interconnection that ties these three young people together is that they each make the others, not better, better is a loaded term, but but more themselves. They, they make the others a more perfect form of themselves. It's positively Aristotelian. Um, note, too, that the door is being left ajar here. We get some really skilled foreshadowing. Between this chapter and then the following chapter at the Quidditch match, which I'm going to have to speed up if I'm going to get to tonight in due course. Um, between this and the Quidditch match, we get some really skilled foreshadowing. Uh, between Snape and Quirrell. The only kind of the only conspicuous point is that they're always mentioned so close together, you know? It does seem odd that Quirrell should show up at this point in the book. That that having collapsed in the great hall, he should somehow find himself down at the girls' bathroom, you know? <laughs> but apart from that, it's 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 really very good. It's also interesting that neither Snape nor Quirrell does anything after they enter the room. The only thing we get from Snape is that he shoots Harry a a sharp piercing look. And that's it. No further contribution than that. Which we could read as, you know, his his submission to McGonagall's greater authority. Or we could read as J.K. Rowling, neatly giving us as few clues as possible so as to preserve the mystery at the heart of the book. Hermione steps up to defend Harry and to defend Ron and is punished with the deduction of five house points. Harry and Ron, on the other hand, are rewarded with five points each for their valiant endeavors. Um, I mentioned last time that the house system at Hogwarts and the points system specifically exists in part to allow J.K. Rowling in her narrative role to kind of quantify good and evil. To kind of of give a, a moral score to action. But it does seem as though points lost are never just, and points gained are always just. Does that seem to hold up through the course of this book in particular? We'll see how that goes. So we conclude this chapter with the last scene, as Harry and Ron return to the Gryffindor common room. We should have gotten more than ten points, Ron grumbled. Five, you mean, once she's taken off Hermione's. Good of her to get us in trouble like that. Ron, excuse me. Good of her to get us out of trouble like that. Ron admitted. Mind you, we did save her. She might not have needed saving if we hadn't locked that thing in with her. Harry reminded him. They had reached the portrait of the fat lady. Pigsnat. They said and entered. The common room was packed and noisy. Everyone was eating the food that had been sent up. Hermione, however, stood alone by the door waiting for them. There was a very embarrassed pause. Then none of them looking at each other. They all said, thanks, and hurried off to get plates. But from that moment on, Hermione Granger became their friend. There are some things you can't share without ending up liking each other, and knocking out a 12-foot mountain troll is one of them. A great beat. <laughs> I love that. I love that great beat. Um, yes, the, the, the accurate awkwardness of, of teenagers interacting or not even teenagers, of young people interacting. Um, And yes, of course, the the line at the end there really does confirm both internally and externally exactly what this scene serves, exactly the function that this scene serves, which is, you know, you set your heroes against a common foe and they unite. How often have we seen that? (laughs) That's every Marvel comic. Uh... That's every Marvel comic since the dawn of time. And I think uh, Maya in, in, in the YouTube chat here says, the last lines feel like someone other than J.K.R. wrote them. It's weird. It's weird, I think, because it's a weird narrative position. It's a weird perspective. J.K. Rowling, here for perhaps the first time in the entire book, is leaning so heavily on that fourth wall. She's leaning so heavily on the fictional frame. She's looking the reader straight in the eye and saying, huh? huh? Remember? It's that thing that happens. It's that thing that happens in the stories that you like, where the heroes band together and they fight the thing and then they're united and then they're friends. It's that thing. I think that's why it feels strange. I I think it is is done with more of a wink and a nod than pretty much anything else in the book. And that's dangerous. I talked um, last week, the week before, I forget, about... J.R.R. Tolkien and his his brilliant essay on fairy stories uh, in which he says that one of the things you've got to be very careful of when you're writing a fairy story, when you're writing what we would think of today as a fantasy story, which Harry Potter certainly is, one of the things you've got to be very careful of is not to lean on the fourth wall. It's not to, to draw attention to the artifice of the story, because when you do, the whole thing falls apart. And this is the point at which I think J.K. Rowling gets closest to that. She moderates that inclination, if general inclination it is. You know, maybe maybe this one <laughs> occurrence isn't enough to infer, you know, a great predisposition in J.K. Rowling's nature. But uh, yeah, yeah, I've got to say, I think it works for me. I like it. I, I like it's just enough of a nod for me. It's a good thing that there isn't any more um, for for the sake of the, the the structure of the story. But I love that beat before it. I love that beat where they kind of shuffle their feet. They they acknowledge the unspoken thing as much as they're capable (laughs) Um, with this this muttered thanks, and then we'll go and get food. It's perfect. It's note-perfect. Alright. We really do need to pick up the pace here, though. Luckily, (laughs) we just have Quidditch. Alright, let's see here. Does this camaraderie fit into the heroic archetype the band of brothers forged together in battle? in in the the sole heroic archetype, no some heroic archetypes um some define themselves in opposition to others. your classical hero does your romantic hero does your modern hero can <laughs> to a certain extent to a greater or lesser extent I mean Batman will work with Superman, but it's only as a means of accomplishing the direct short term end uh as Batman as the modern hero um but it's absolutely possible for the medieval hero to work with other heroes. Again, selflessness, expediency. These things matter. And and humility, too. Pride is what gets in the way of forming a good team. Yeah. Oh, Kay says, Kindle indicated it was the favorite line of many. That is one of my favorite things about the Kindle. <laughs> I mean, not always, but sometimes it's really nice to stumble upon a favorite line and go, oh, a lot of people like this. That's great. Good, good, good. Yes. Sue says a troll sentient and a bear not, I find that problematic. Yes, no, I did phrase that poorly. I did phrase that poorly, so you're absolutely right to call me out on it. Um I guess I mean a a. Mm, I guess I mean a human type sentience, a recognizably human type sentience. Um It is of course very difficult to make fine judgments about such things when we understand it so poorly. Um and, and, and possess the language to express it uh in an even more lacking way. Uh, Sarah says it's the trio, right? It's similar to the five man band. The trio works a little differently from the five man band, but yes, they're certainly on a continuum. Um, I would bring you back to, to this discussion that we had way back in chapter one. Remember when we were talking about, uh, McGonagall and Dumbledore and, and Hagrid as the, uh, the, the logos, the pathos, and the ethos? Um, or, or I guess, yes. <laughs> McGonagall as the logos, Dumbledore as the ethos, the, the driving force, the agency. And uh Hagrid as the 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 pathos there, the pathos. Um that is certainly true when we look at Harry, Ron, and Hermione. Harry is the ethos, he is the hero, he is the driving force, he is the unifying force, he is the core identity of this group. Uh Hermione is the logos, she is the rationality, she is the objectivity, she is the the brain, if you will. Uh whereas Ron is the pathos. He is the heart. He is the emotion. He is the the instinctive response. He is the, the unfettered id of the group. Yeah. Yes, this power trio. Uh, uh, yes <laughs> McGiggle Qt. I don't know how to pronounce your first name, McGiggle Qt. Can you show me the uh Sai-woo? I don't know. Saywoo? You'll have to give me a phonetic pronunciation there. This is the joy of Twitter. But yes, McGiggleCutie on Twitter points out the musketeers. Absolutely. Three musketeers. Yes. Porthos, Athos, and Aramis. Logos, Pathos, Ethos. It's all there. All right. Let's keep going. I know you're all conspiring to keep me late tonight. Oh my god, it's a quarter after ten. I really do need to pick up the pace. All right. So, um, we begin chapter 11 with an account of the changing of the seasons. More time has passed, uh, though... I feel like it's a week. I feel like because of where the dates fall, it doesn't seem as though we go straight into the Quidditch match. So it seems as though it's the following Saturday instead of the immediate Saturday, as it were. Um, so we get the foreshadowing of Harry's Quidditch match. Uh, the detail here that there are 700 possible Quidditch fouls, um, <laughs> which I love as a detail. Because it speaks to both the medievalist inclination to account and to categorize, you know, the, the nerdy desire to establish a taxonomy extends all the way back to, to the medieval period, where, where you know, natural philosophers would go out and and just exhaustively categorize and count everything. They would put everything in its place. So it's, I love that there are 700, and it also speaks toward the natural philosopher's desire for, you know, uh, comprehensivity. You know, they, they want it to be a complete and, and unabridged list. Snape punishes Harry on ambiguous grounds and confiscates Hermione's copy of Quidditch Through the Ages. It says that Hermione lends him the copy. Snape confiscates it because he's not supposed to have a library book. I don't know. I don't know where we come down on that. Um... <laughs> And I don't have time to get into it. Harry goes off to retrieve the book, but finds Snape in the staff room, having his leg bound by Filch, complaining about the three-headed dog guarding the trapdoor in the forbidden hallway. This, of course, reinforces the suspicions that Harry has about Snape, at least in the abstract, if not in the specific. It's tempting here to think, because these two events take place so close together in the book, it is tempting to think, that's where Snape went when he was going up to the third floor during the troll attack, but the passage of time is clear, and this has to be a fresh wound because Harry and the others notice Snape limping. So this injury couldn't have taken place during the troll attack, it had to have been a, a later expedition to the third floor. We spent a little time framing the 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 conflict, foreshadowing what is to come, and all too soon it is time for Harry's first Quidditch match. And this is what I was talking about earlier. This is the uh, this is the email that I got from 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 Robbie, who managed to join us here tonight, which is wonderful. This is where we break POV. Um, we had that that you know loosey goosey you know zoom out at the beginning of the last chapter, but here we get something much more stark, and this is it i can get my screen to share there he goes gryffindor cheers filled the cold air with howls and moans from the slytherins budge up there move along hagrid ron and hermione squeezed together to give hagrid enough space to join them been watching from yacht said hagrid putting a large pair of binoculars around his neck but it isn't the same as being in the crowd no sign of the snitch yet eh nope said ron harry hasn't had much to do yet Kept out of trouble, though, that's something, said Hagrid, raising his binoculars and peering skyward at the speck that was Harry. Way up above them, Harry was gliding over the game, squinting about for some sign of the snitch. This was part of his and Wood's game plan. Keep out of sight until you see... Keep out of the way until you catch sight of the snitch, Wood had said. We don't want you attacked before you have to be. So one of the things that I like here, (laughs) one of the things that draws attention to itself here, um is that there's no note made of Hermione and Hagrid meeting socially for the first time. It isn't impossible that Hagrid and Hermione are familiar with one another, as it were, uh, but it is interesting that we are now treating our power trio as a single narrative unit, you know? We don't take time out to introduce Hermione to Hagrid. We know that Ron has met Hagrid socially, but Hermione up until now hasn't. (laughs) The treating of the power unit the power trio as one narrative unit is going to come and go, but it is hard to shake the idea that Ron and Hermione are are charged with some small part of Harry's specialness, you know? And the only other detail to pull out here, besides this perspective shift, um, is to question what would Wood's plan have been if not Stay out of the way until the snitch shows up. I- is it normal for the seeker to just fly around in the middle of the pitch and get in people's ways? Because that seems like bad gamecraft. I don't know. That seems like a poor strategy to me. Stay out of the way until the snitch shows up. Seems like Quidditch 101. I don't know. All right, let's move on. We have another slide right here. And this is when we get right to it. This is when we get to the core of... Everything that we're going to see from from Quidditch as a whole in this book. Slytherin in possession, Lee Jordan was saying. Chaser Pusey ducks two bludgers, two Weasleys and chaser bell and speeds towards the... Wait a moment. Was that the snitch? A murmur ran through the crowd as Adrian Pusey dropped the quaffle, too busy looking over his shoulder at the flash of gold that had passed his left ear. Harry saw it too. In a great rush of excitement, he dived downward after the streak of gold. Slytherin seeker Terence Higgs had seen it, too. Neck and neck they hurtled toward the snitch. All the chasers seemed to have forgotten what they were supposed to be doing as they hung in mid-air to watch. Harry was faster than Higgs. He could see the little round ball, wings fluttering, darting up ahead. He put on an extra spurt of speed. Wham! A roar of rage echoed from the Gryffindors below. Marcus Flint had blocked Harry on purpose, and Harry's broom spun off course, Harry holding on for dear life. "'Foul!' screamed the Gryffindors. Madam Hooch spoke angrily to Flint and then ordered a free shot at the goalposts for Gryffindor. But in all the confusion, of course, the golden snitch had disappeared from sight again. Down in the stands, Dean Thomas was rallying, "'Send him off, ref! Red card!' "'What are you talking about, Dean?' said Ron. "'Red card!' said Dean furiously. "'In soccer you get shown the red card and you're out of the game!' "'But this isn't soccer, Dean,' Ron reminded him. Hagrid, however, was on Dean's side. They ought to change the rules. Flint could have knocked Harry out of the air. So two things to note. The first of which is, of course, the Chasers seem to have forgotten what they were supposed to be doing as they hung in midair to watch. (laughs) The Snitch appears in every game of Quidditch. We know this to be true. It is a necessary thing. This is the in-universe recognition that Quidditch is an elaborate pre-game show before two Seekers play Catch the Snitch. (laughs) <laughs> when the snitch shows up, even the people who are playing, even the competitors themselves, stop to watch the real game. Secondly, we know that there are 700 possible fouls in Quidditch. And we know that they all happened in 1473, meaning that we can assume that they were added to the rulebook immediately after that particularly bloody match. On the one hand, that means, of course, that there's a long and venerable history to this sport, but the rules are all but stagnant. Imagine the, I don't know, the NFL, if there hadn't been a significant rule change for over 500 years. Yet, here's Hagrid, purportedly a fan of tradition and good order, immediately suggesting that the rules be changed because Harry was almost hurt. Harry Potter, the special case, was almost hurt. So we must change the rules and add a 701st foul. On the other hand, it doesn't seem as though what Flint does is anything particularly exceptional. He blocks Harry, which presumably must be what Wood was warning Harry about. A foul is awarded against him, and Gryffindor gets a, gets a, a free shot. This seems like a normal part of the game, but it's, it's treated like a special event. And not just by Hagrid, though, of course, he's the most conspicuous. Hagrid is always going to be the most conspicuous, thanks to the wonderful way that he expresses himself, but also by the Gryffindors in the stands. Everyone seems appalled that this thing has happened. But specifically, they're appalled that this thing has happened to Harry. It's all part of the myth. Harry begins to lose control of his broomstick at this point. In a moment, he is left hanging by one hand. The others are worried... But we fall back to action girl Hermione Granger as she figures out what is going on and rushes in to help. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, and this is the second time that, that a muggle sport, uh, Dean's reference to a red card in in, in football, in, in soccer, is the second time that a muggle sport has been met with blank looks here. Uh, the first time is in the... British version, Harry describes the bludgers as being like rounders. In the American version, it's like baseball. But in both cases, Wood says, like what? So apparently, mogul sports don't have a big following in the wizarding community. Um, All right, so let's get to Hermione's crowning moment of awesome and her moment of reciprocity, because this is the moment, of course, when she saves Harry. Let's do this. Before Ron could say another word, Hermione had disappeared. Ron turned the binoculars back on Harry. His broom was vibrating so hard it was almost impossible for him to hang on much longer. The whole crowd was on its feet, watching, terrified, as the Weasleys flew up to try and pull Harry safely onto one of their brooms. But it was no good. Every time they got near him, the broom would jump higher still. They dropped lower and circled beneath him, obviously hoping to catch him if he fell. Marcus Flint seized the quaffle and scored five times without anyone noticing. "'Come on, Hermione!' Ron muttered desperately. Hermione had fought her way across to the stand where Snape stood, and was now racing along the row behind him. She didn't even stop to say sorry as she knocked Professor Quirrell headfirst into the row in front. Reaching Snape, she crouched down, pulled out her wand, and whispered a few well-chosen words. Bright blue flames shot from her wand onto the hem of Snape's robes. It took perhaps thirty seconds for Snape to realise that he was on fire— A sudden yelp told her she had done her job. Scooping the fire off him into a little jar in her pocket, she scrambled back along the row. Snape would never know what had happened. It was enough. Up in the air, Harry was suddenly able to clamber back onto his broom. Neville, you can look, Ron said. Neville had been sobbing into Hagrid's jacket for the last five minutes. Harry was speeding toward the ground when the crowd saw him clap his hand to his mouth as though he was about to be sick. He hit the field on all fours. Coughed and something gold fell into his hand. "'I've got the snitch!' he shouted, waving it above his head, and the game ended in complete confusion. "'He didn't catch it! He nearly swallowed it!' Flint was still howling twenty minutes later, but it made no difference. Harry hadn't broken any rules, and Lee Jordan was still happily shouting the results. Gryffindor had won by one hundred and seventy points! To sixty! Harry heard none of this, though. He was being made a cup of strong tea back in Hagrid's hut with Ron and Hermione. It's one thing, by the way, for Hermione to become suddenly comfortable with bending the rules. <laughs> but this is... This is something else. What, what is arson when it's applied to a person? What is, what is the name of that crime? I'm sure there is one. She's, she sets a dude on fire, is my point. Um, in case you weren't convinced earlier about the crazy math of Quidditch, look at that final score. Before everything went wrong with Harry's broom allowing Flint to score five times... The score was 20 points to Gryffindor, 10 to Slytherin. And everyone seemed perfectly happy that this was a a tense, awesome match. So let's talk... Okay, it's 25 after. Let's talk just a little about the snitch. One of the many useful words that J.R.R. Tolkien gave us in the English language, he gifted to to those of us who, who study storytelling... One of the best words he created was the word eucatastrophe, which he ingeniously created by adding the, the Greek prefix eu, meaning, meaning good or fortuitous to the word catastrophe, meaning an overturning or a sudden end. Eucatastrophe. Eucatastrophe is the sudden chance. It's the sudden happenstance that avoids disaster. It is most often specifically applied. Uh, oftentimes by Tolkien himself, in his later writings and letters, to the scene at the end of Out of the Frying Pan into the Fire, in The Hobbit. This is the scene where, after emerging from, from Goblin Town under the Misty Mountains, Bilbo runs down, he's reunited with the dwarves, and they take to the pine trees to hide from the meeting of goblins and wargs. The goblins and wargs discover them and set fire to the trees, and suddenly everything's looking real bad. Nothing here is going to turn out well, except that this is the moment when the eagles show up. The eagles arrive and they carry the dwarves and Bilbo and Gandalf away. And if you are perhaps more familiar with the film version than the book version, in the book version there's none of this Gandalf whispering to a moth. The whole point in the book is that the eagles show up for no reason. It is simply a fortuitous accident. It is eucatastrophe. You catastrophe, by the way, for, 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 those of you who are deep into this, can definitely be considered a type of Deus Ex Machina sometimes, but it's different in two key ways. Firstly, you catastrophe doesn't necessarily need to function from the collected parts of the fictional world. It doesn't need to arise from the machine in the way that Deus Ex Machina, when you, when you technically use it, should arise from the machine. The second way in which eucatastrophe differs is that eucatastrophe speaks to a fundamentally idealistic and optimistic sense of the world. Eucatastrophe relies upon a basic assumption that good things can happen. And Tolkien defended this by saying, we have no problem in fiction when catastrophes happen. We have no problem in fiction when suddenly something terrible comes out of nowhere and strikes at our protagonist. That happens all the time, and we're good with that. But for some reason, when something good comes out of nowhere, when something good just arises and saves the day, we're more suspicious of it. Now, I frame this to ask you this simple question. (laughs) Is Harry's recovery of the snitch you catastrophe? Is this a thing that happens because fundamentally on some level the world is just and good? Is it simple luck with, with no presupposition about the nature of the world? Is it is it just a chance thing that happened? Is it proof of Harry's exceptionalism? Did Harry catch the snitch in his mouth as he fell, or as he flew down rapidly in such a way that, that implies falling? Did Harry catch the snitch accidentally simply because he is that special? Let me know your answers on that. <laughs> We conclude the chapter with Hagrid denying any possibility of Snape's involvement. Yeah, we can skip over this. Um, Yes, Hagrid denies any possibility of Snape's involvement in the jinx on Harry's broom, nor yet uh, in any plan to recover whatever Dumbledore had hidden in Hogwarts. We do learn that the three-headed dog is named Fluffy. We do learn that Hagrid got it from a Greek fellow, uh, (laughs) which is... It opens up an interesting kind of implication about the role of, of ancient mythology in, in the world of Harry Potter, at least. Um, and we learn, though inexplicably, we won't pick up this detail for quite some time, that Dumbledore is associated with the famed alchemist of yore, Nicholas Flamel. That is where we close out this chapter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Robbie says Tolkien had a point, but it usually seems like lazy writing rather than happenstance. This is this is the basic thing, okay? This is the this is the the, the basic element that separates the catastrophe from the either random happenstance or lazy writing or Deus Ex Machina is that the U catastrophe is a part of a broader kind of thematic whole. The U catastrophe reflects something about this entire narrative works. Take on the world, on how things work, on on fate or fortune or chance or faith. Um, you know, there's all kinds of stuff. C.S. Lewis was was uh, an interesting um, advocate of eucatastrophe as a manifestation, not just of of God's will, but of faith itself. That that the act of being faithful led to good things happening, and thus to eucatastrophic outcomes. That is, you know, people have studied that for years. (laughs) Alan says, but is it ever okay? Can our investment of belief stretch that far? Um, Yes, I think so. I think that um, this challenges my my investment of belief more than the eagles rescuing Bilbo and the dwarves from the top of the tree. Um, I'm not at all sure that I like Harry catching the snitch. But I, I think that I dislike it more because it feels so rushed and expedient. It feels like we're done. It feels like this is the end of the chapter. So we've got to wrap things up and, and and get out of there. Why does Harry not hang around and celebrate his moment of glory? Why does he immediately leave so that we can return to our main plot? When all we've done for this chapter is, is tool around in, in the Quidditch field, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Katie says, I have an easier time accepting good things that just happen over bad things in any book or movie or story. Katie, I think that speaks to a fundamental optimism. I think you, Katie, are a little ray of sunshine. I think that's the explanation right there. And Kay raises an interesting question. Maybe the snitch is attracted to Harry like others are. Yes, we don't have a point of speculation at this point. Um, But yes there are a couple of possible explanations that that kind of break the <laughs> kind of break the u-catastrophic aspect of this whether whether we're willing to pin it as eucatastrophe or we want to look at it in another way um yeah that's a good thought yes <laughs> Pam says, we and the kids are so willing to believe, oh, I'm sorry, that just scrolled right down. Just as I was reading your response there, Pam, it scrolled right down and I lost the back half of it. Pam says, we and the kids are so willing to believe Snape is the villain because he is so ugly and socially inept. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's a, His persecution of Harry, I think, goes beyond simple social ineptness, but yes, certainly. Good. I'm a mad hatter, says Hagrid cannot keep a secret to save his life. Yes, right? Which speaks to this whole idea that Hagrid is the reason why everyone knows Harry's story. Hagrid is the one who, who spread the word, not of, of the vague story, of course, but the specifics, the scar, the, the the muggle world, you know, the whole thing. Hagrid can't keep his mouth shut. <laughs> Robbie says, OMG, at CS Lewis subscribing to The Secret. That, I think, is a conversation for another time. Maybe I'll put a C.S. Lewis book uh, up on the next short list. <laughs> all right. All right. Yes. And Chris says, uh, Chris, uh, in, in response to why I was asking why Harry leaves the field of victory so swiftly, Chris says, because it was a traumatic victory for him, Hagrid takes him away to recover in peace. But why? <laughs> is it would be the question to that. Why is it written in this particular way? So that Harry is denied the moment of, well, you know, it's a word that we've used throughout tonight's seminar, but his moment of glory. The more carefully I read this book, the more I see these hints that power is corruptive and dangerous, and that these hints are present right from the beginning of the book. They're very subtle. Um, well, some of them are very subtle, (laughs) but there are things, moments like this where Hagrid being hurried away, uh, excuse me, Harry being hurried away by Hagrid to this very kind of mundane, this, this, this most British of all, you know, uh, restorative rituals, the, the giving of strong tea, um, rather than celebrating his moment of awesome on the field with the whole school in attendance, you know, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. All right. I think, I think that is where we're going to call it quits for tonight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes, Alan says, at a disadvantage reading as adults. Joe knows kids the more I read, and they are very generous in what they are willing to believe. Yes, I think that's true. I think that I think that is true. Um, I think it is certainly fair to say that one of the ways in which Rowling directly addresses a youthful audience um, is in that she gives us little supporting material. She asserts it the way that you assert a fairy tale. Um, We don't, for example, in Red Riding Hood, go into any kind of explanation of why Granny lives off in the woods by herself, a long way from Red Riding Hood's house, you know, in in this wolf-infested forest. We assert it, and it is taken, and and it is just a fundamental part of the story. Rowling does the same thing, and that is something that you see in children's fiction, because adults generally need, well, that's not how it happened. Though, of course, as we argue all the time here on Storywonk, reality is no defense for fiction. Saying that's not how it works in real life is never a valid objection to a fictional story. never. The only fictional object or the only objection that you can offer to a fictional work is that is internally inconsistent. This detail that you assert to be true doesn't make sense in the light of these other details that you assert to be true. Saying this doesn't jive with what I know of reality doesn't get you anywhere. All right. Guys, we are going to call it quits there. Let me call up the final slide here so that I can show you um, and indeed remind myself what we're getting into. Next week, we're going to have more material, but it is particularly fragmented and episodic, so we're going to move through it very quickly. Um, So we're going to cover three chapters next week. Putting the pieces together, chapters 12, 13, and 14. Oh, Barbara says in Twitter here, and when I read these books, I also become childlike and filled with wonder and joy, willingly inhabit this universe. That is, of course, what I was talking about last week about Tolkien's consolation of fantasy. That is one of the things that that fantasy can do for us, is, is restore this sense of awe and wonder, the awe and wonder that we felt as children. By showing us marvelous things, we feel awe. It's a great thing. And it's a powerful thing for those of you who write fantasy, those of you who write, you know, escapist fiction, those of you who write stories that are looked down upon by the the literary establishment. No, you're giving your readers a rare and valuable gift. So that is it for next week. Putting the pieces together, chapters 12, 13, and 14. I will conclude tonight by canceling that slide and very quickly going to look at the voting. I would remind you all, you have three weeks. You're certainly not in a hurry. But if you feel so inclined to go and vote, Let us see where we are. Well, we have had many, many more votes. And, well, they have all moved in a certain direction. We have one vote for a Wizard of Earthsea, two for A Wrinkle in Time, three for Foucault's Pendulum, five for Mort, and a rousing 13 for Pride and Prejudice. I think I see where this is going, you guys. Three weeks left to vote. Vote, get your friends. You can only vote once. I did fix this from last time, so you can only vote once now. But make it count. Guys, thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for spending your evening with me. Next Tuesday night, nine PM. If you are around on Thursday night, if you are a Patreon supporter and you would like to hang out with Lonnie and I, nine PM Eastern, right here. We're gonna do maybe an hour freeform Q and A. We'll have wine. It'll be great. Come hang out if you are so inclined. If not, I will see you all next week. Have a great week, guys. Bye. <music>